0: Hi everyone, welcome again to the Daily Gospel Exegesis podcast created by the Logical Bible Study Ministry. Thanks for listening. As always, our goal in this podcast is to help you understand the literal sense of scripture from a Catholic perspective. And our reading for today is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 10. So here's the reading you would hear at today's Mass. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John And led them up a high mountain where they could be alone by themselves. There in their presence he was transfigured. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than any earthly bleacher could make them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter spoke to Jesus. Rabbi, he said, it is wonderful for us to be here. So let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, And one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And a cloud came, covering them in shadow. And there came a voice from the cloud. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Then suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them any more, but only Jesus. As they came down from the mountain, he warned them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They observed the warning faithfully, though among themselves they discussed what rising from the dead could mean. So that's our text for today, and we're going to see here the transfiguration, the famous event. A lot of people treat this as a bit of an awkward event because we're not entirely sure what to do with it. And that makes sense, because in a lot of ways, what happens here at the Transfiguration is a mystery. There's some aspects of it that we don't fully understand. But what's interesting about this reading is there's so much packed in here, so many references to the Old Testament and so many different things going on theologically. And really, it's one of those texts that you could keep mining and keep learning new things all the time. So we're just going to try and uh, touch on each of the main areas. So what's the context here? Jesus has been doing ministry all around Galilee, and just prior to this, he's announced to his apostles that he's going to suffer. And also, they should expect to suffer if they want to inherit eternal life. So keep that context in mind. So we're now going to begin what a lot of scholars would consider to be the second half of Mark's gospel. And there's some interesting parallels here between the baptism, which begins the first half of Mark's gospel, And then the transfiguration, which begins the second half, and we'll see those parallels as we go. So, verse 2. Now, in verse 2 in our lectionary, it's actually taken out a phrase here, uh, because if they read this phrase, it may not make sense to start with this phrase. But if you look at your Bible, verse 2 starts with, after six days. So, this is six days after Jesus has been speaking to the apostles about suffering, which is what's the, the previous thing that happened in the Gospel of Mark. So, six days later. Now, the idea of six days, some scholars think there might be an allusion here to the theophany of Mount Sinai. So you remember the story in the book of Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain, and the cloud of God's presence covers Mount Sinai for six days before God spoke to Moses, and you can see that in Exodus chapter 24. And that's interesting because Mark doesn't usually tell us how many days there are between events and what the exact chronology is of things. But here he says after six days. So he probably is trying to draw his readers to a parallel between Moses and what happens here at the Transfiguration. So Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So he takes his three innermost disciples. This is like his inner circle of disciples. So there's some things and some events that he only allows the inner circle of disciples to see. And there's some things he only trusts them with. So from this, we learn there's a hierarchy even within the apostles. So these three men, Peter, James and John, go on to become very prominent leaders in the church. So it seems that Jesus is deliberately bringing these three because he wants them to witness this because they are going to strengthen the other apostles. And then it's going to inform the way they lead the church in the future. So he leads them up a high mountain. In scripture, people go to mountains to be closer to heaven and to be closer to God. And this event, the fact that they go up a mountain, it seems to deliberately mirror the way that Moses ascended Mount Sinai. So you can see this is like the Mount Sinai event of the new covenant. The mountain they go up, we're not sure. It's not The name isn't given to us. Most scholars have thought it might be Mount Tabor, which is certainly in the area, although it could also be Mount Hermon, which is in the same area of Galilee as well. So, the text says they wanted to be alone by themselves. So, Jesus specifically wants to be away from the crowds here. He only wants his three innermost apostles to see this. He doesn't want the crowds to see what happens at the top of the mountain. So, we're actually quite privileged in what we learn here because even most of the disciples did not see what is recounted in today's gospel. And then Mark says, there in their presence, he was transfigured. Now, the word transfigured, it literally means his appearance changed. Now, Matthew's version actually adds a comment here. Matthew's version of the transfiguration adds that his face shone like the sun. So, he became dazzlingly white. And then in verse 3, it says his clothes became dazzlingly white. Or another translation is his garments became glistening. Now, in scripture, clothing is often a visible expression of the person. So a person's clothes tell you about the identity of the person. So the fact that Jesus' clothes here turn white probably is supposed to indicate his divinity or his purity. Or maybe it's supposed to indicate his holiness, a holiness that can only come from God, possibly all of those. There's some other places where... White garments appear prominent, so in Matthew chapter 28, the angel at the tomb has dazzlingly white garments, and there's other places in the Old Testament too. And then Mark adds this editorial comment that none of the other gospel authors add, which is that his clothes became whiter than any earthly bleacher could make them. So you can really hear Peter's eyewitness recollections coming through here. Remember Mark's gospel, Mark got most of his information, it seems, from Peter, So here it seems that we have a comment that Peter has directly added in. It was whiter than any earthly bleacher could make them because Peter was there. He was one of the three apostles that's at the top of the mountain with Jesus. So what's going on here? Jesus' transfiguration. Why does he suddenly become dazzlingly white? What's going on? The gospels don't give us a full explanation, but we can possibly summarize it as something like this. The true glorified form of Jesus is shining through. Jesus' true form is being revealed. And it's the form that will be fully revealed at the second coming, when all people will see it. So Jesus here is shining with his own divine glory. Typically, you would associate this kind of blinding whiteness with, with God or with the angels. But here, Jesus shines with it. He's shining with his own divine glory. So presumably, Jesus is showing his innermost apostles his true identity. He's deliberately allowing them a glimpse of, at what he is really like he feels that they're ready to see this in a sense he could also say the transfiguration is a foreshadowing of resurrected humanity in the new heavens and the new earth the righteous will have similar bodies to Jesus and you see that in Daniel chapter 12 it talks about how the righteous will shine and then wisdom chapter 3 verse 7 and also in Matthew 13 verse 43 all of these have these descriptions of the righteous at the judgment are going to shine and then in verse four, Mark says, Elijah appeared to them with Moses. So out of nowhere, Elijah and Moses show up. Elijah and Moses were considered to be the two most important figures in the Old Testament and then in the development of the Judaic religion, because Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. And together, the two of them represent the entire Old Testament. So presumably their appearance here is supposed to indicate to the apostles that are watching that Jesus truly has divine approval. So not only is Jesus shining with his glory, it's like God has also allowed Moses and Elijah to show up as another indicator that Jesus really does have divine approval. If Moses and Elijah are there, it must mean that God approves of it. And that's certainly the way the apostles would have perceived it. Now, try and put yourself in the apostle's shoes here. These are faithful Jews. They don't fully understand Jesus' identity yet. All of a sudden, he shines with this divine glory. And then Moses and Elijah show up, who are the greatest, most revered people in Judaism. Now, interestingly, both Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet, they're both well-known miracle workers. And notice the similarities here with Jesus. They're miracle workers who fasted for 40 days. Both of them did. Both Moses and Elijah were rejected by some of God's people. Both of them encountered God's glory on Sinai. And then both figures were associated with the Jewish eschatological hope. For both Moses and Elijah, there's verses in the Old Testament which talk about how they're going to return, in a sense, before the coming of the New Age, the Messianic Age. So they, they were both expected to show up in some form. And here they both are. Another similarity here, and this is really interesting, is that Moses and Elijah apparently both had their bodies taken up to heaven. It explicitly says that about Elijah in 1 Kings, and then there's, there was a Jewish tradition at the time, and the book of Jude appears to mention this as well, that Moses' body also apparently went up to heaven after his death. So that would explain how both Moses and Elijah can appear in bodily form here, because presumably, In the Old Testament when uh, righteous people died their bodies generally didn't go to heaven but Moses and Elijah are exceptions so that explains how they can appear here in their bodies and they were talking with Jesus now here we don't know exactly what they were talking about but later if you read the New Testament later on we learn a little more about what they were saying to Jesus and the language the New Testament uses is they were talking about the Exodus that Jesus was to accomplish so Basically, they're talking about his coming death and resurrection. It'd be fascinating to know what they actually said to Jesus here. Can you imagine this conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? Verse 5, then Peter spoke to Jesus. Rabbi, or you can translate that master, which is, it's a title of respect, which means my great one. So he's overwhelmed here. Peter is overwhelmed. And he says, it is wonderful for us to be here. Now, Peter is probably being quite genuine. He's genuinely excited by what he's seeing. This will be a truly amazing event for him and for the other apostles. He probably thinks the kingdom of God has come. Moses and Elijah have shown up, which they expected to happen at the beginning of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is shining with God's glory. He probably thinks this is it. So he says, this is his suggestion. He says to Jesus, let us make three tents, or you can translate that booths, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. So, Peter probably thinks they're going to stay for a while or possibly he wants them to stay for a while. He's trying to get them to stay. He wants to prolong the heavenly experience that he's witnessing. So what's going on with these booths here? I want to read out this quote from the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, and this is for the book of Matthew, but it certainly applies to Mark's version as well. So here's what it says. When Peter suggests to build three booths, he likely has in mind the tents used for the Feast of Tabernacles the Autumn Harvest Festival, in which the Israelites dwelt in makeshift tents for seven days, commemorating how God's presence dwelt in the Tent of Meeting, and how the Israelites themselves dwelt in tents as they journeyed through the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. The Greek word here translated, tents, is used in the Septuagint for the tents made for this feast. Significantly, the feast also pointed to a future fulfilment, anticipating the time when the nations would come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord as king in an eschatological feast of tabernacles in Zechariah 14 and Hosea 12. When Peter witnesses Jesus transfigured in glory, he may consider the eschatological era to be dawning and thus seeks to enter into this experience in a way reminiscent of the feast of tabernacles. So that's a really nice quote, I think. So Peter has all these things going on in his head. He's looking at Jesus being transfigured, he's seeing Moses and Elijah, and he's associating those things with the coming of the messianic age. And another thing that's associated with the coming of the messianic age is sort of a renewed feast of tabernacles. So he's putting all those things together, and maybe that's why he wants to build them booths. What Peter doesn't grasp is that Jesus' glory is not going to remain with them permanently. He's hoping that it will, but What Jesus has been trying to tell the apostles is that Jesus has to go to the cross in order for the fullness of his glory to be revealed. Peter doesn't get that yet, and he won't really understand that until Jesus is resurrected. Verse 6, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened, or more literally, they were exceedingly afraid. So Peter and the apostles are genuinely afraid about what's going on. And this makes sense, because if you think about what happens whenever someone encounters an angel in the Bible, the first thing the angel has to say to them is, do not be afraid. So whenever God's glory shows up in this form, people are afraid. It's frightening. Now, Peter suggests that he build tents for them, but he doesn't get an answer to his proposal, because the very next thing that happens is a cloud comes over them straight away as Peter is speaking. So verse 7, a cloud came, and Matthew's version specifies that this is a bright cloud, and it covered them in shadow, or more literally, it overshadowed them. So this language of the cloud overshadowing them, it calls to mind how in the Old Testament, the cloud covered and protected the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember how the cloud followed them and led the way for them in the wilderness. In the book of Exodus, the cloud represented the very presence of God. God was considered to dwell in the cloud. Later in the Old Testament, the cloud represented God's presence in the temple, and there's some scenes where they physically see God's uh, God's presence in the temple in the form of a cloud. It was believed that God's presence left during the time of Ezekiel. There's a scene where the cloud leaves the temple. But the Jews did believe that one day God's glory would return when the kingdom of God arrived in its fullness. So the fact that the cloud shows up here hovering over Jesus now indicates that Jesus is the new dwelling place of God. This is the moment they've been waiting for. God's glory has returned in the person of Jesus. Now, some scholars think that here, maybe the cloud also represents the Holy Spirit. So that would mean the Trinity is present here, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that would certainly be a good parallel with the baptism event, where the three persons of the Trinity were also present. And then a voice came from the cloud. This is my Son, the Beloved. Or you can translate that, this is my beloved son. Again, this is exactly what the father said at Jesus' baptism. But in the baptism, it seems that only Jesus heard the voice, but here it's directed at the apostles. The father speaks to the apostles and says, this is my beloved son. He wants, the father wants the apostles to be very clear on Jesus' identity. This is my son. And then God says, listen to him. So I think the best way to interpret this whole event, what's the point of the Transfiguration? It's a solution to the disciples doubting Jesus and his authority. Remember what's happened just prior to this event. Jesus has been telling them he's going to suffer and they seem to be struggling with this teaching. God wants the leaders of the disciples, Peter, James and John, to have confidence in Jesus. And he wants those apostles to teach the other apostles to have confidence. So God allows the transfiguration to happen in order to convince the apostles that Jesus really is the Son of God, and therefore they should be serious about him and pay attention to him. That's going to include taking seriously what Jesus has just said about suffering. So maybe God's trying to teach the apostles that if they listen to him and they follow him to the cross, their destiny will be joined to his, and they too will experience a divine glory. So, God here says, listen to him, and this might recall the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, where God says that one day he'll raise up a prophet like Moses, who the people will listen to, and certainly that is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, at this point, Matthew's version of the transfiguration tells us that the apostles fell on their face in fear, and Jesus comforts them. But Mark's version just goes straight into verse 8, then suddenly when they looked around they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. So Moses and Elijah have vanished, Jesus is not shining anymore. The vision is over, it's accomplished its purpose. Verse 9, as they came down from the mountain he warned them not to tell anyone what they had seen. So it would be too much for the other apostles and the other disciples to handle if the apostles if these three apostles came down from the mountain and said, guess what we just saw, they wouldn't be able to put it into words and probably the people they were talking to wouldn't be able to believe and receive it. Or possibly, maybe the issue would be that if they did tell people what they'd seen, the apostles and the disciples would believe it too much and they would try to take him as king because there was beliefs at the time that the Messiah was going to be a great revolutionary king And all might get out of hand. So here, as Jesus does in other places, he says, don't tell anyone what you have seen. This is a privileged encounter. But he adds in this qualifier, don't tell anyone what you have seen until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, Jesus has already predicted once that he's going to die and rise again in chapter eight, but the apostles still don't understand what Jesus means by this. So he says it again, until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, the Jews at Jesus' time did believe in a general resurrection. They believed that people would rise again. But they believed that is all going to happen at once at the final judgment. They did not believe that there would be any individual resurrections before then. Even of the Messiah, that was not on their radar at all. So every time, before Jesus' death, every time Jesus says, I'm going to die and rise again, they just cannot fathom it. It doesn't make sense to them. Why does Jesus say, don't talk about it until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead? Presumably because people are more likely to believe the story of the transfiguration after the resurrection, and maybe they'll understand the transfiguration better in light of the resurrection. Verse 10, Mark tells us the apostles observed the warning faithfully, or more literally, they kept the matter to themselves. So, unlike some other people in the Gospels, when Jesus says, don't tell anyone, And they run around and tell everyone. Here the apostles, they do. They listen to Jesus and they keep it to themselves. But Mark tells us, though among themselves, they discussed what rising from the dead could mean. So again, they're struggling with this concept that Jesus is going to rise again. So I want to finish with this quote here, again from the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. I think it does a really excellent job summarizing all of the theological threads that come together in the transfiguration. What these three disciples saw and heard on the mountain would have reminded them of what happened to Moses at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, Moses led three of his close associates up Mount Sinai that was then covered by God's glory in the form of a cloud for six days. On the seventh day, the divine voice called out from the cloud and spoke to Moses. Moreover, during Israel's stay at Sinai, "...Moses would enter the cloud atop the mountain to talk to God, and when he left, his face would shine, reflecting God's glory and leaving the people in awe." Similarly, Jesus singles out three of his apostles and leads them up a high mountain that is overshadowed by the cloud of God's glory. As at Sinai, a heavenly voice calls out from the cloud on the seventh day. As Moses' face shone, so Jesus' face shines brightly." As the people at Sinai were left in awe, so the apostles at the end of the scene are lying prostrate, greatly afraid. The disciples soon will see their master betrayed, arrested, condemned, and crucified. Here Jesus gives three of them an opportunity to see his glory in order to prepare them for this supreme trial of their fate. The scene reveals to them and to the readers that the Son of God on the mountain of transfiguration is the same Son of Man Who will suffer and be killed on a hill in Jerusalem. So, there really are some amazing parallels here between the Transfiguration and the events of the book of Exodus, and it's probably not a coincidence. So, that's the end of our text for today. You can hear the next section, so verses 11 to 13, on Saturday of week six in ordinary time. You might like to look through the podcast archives to find that one. Saturday of week six in ordinary time. So let's now turn to the Catechism to see what it teaches about this passage. How can this passage from Mark inform us on Catholic teaching? So paragraph 552 of the Catechism is about the keys of the kingdom, and there's a specific reference to Peter here. Remember, Peter is one of the only apostles that's allowed to come up the mountain. Simon Peter holds the first place in the College of the Twelve. Jesus entrusted a unique mission to him. And then the paragraph goes on from there. Paragraph 151, this is a really interesting one. This is in the section about what it means to believe in Jesus. For a Christian believing in God cannot be separated from believing in the one he sent, his beloved son, in whom the father is well pleased. God tells us to listen to him. The Lord himself said to his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. We can believe in Jesus Christ because he is himself God, the Word made flesh. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Because he has seen the Father, Jesus Christ is the only one who knows him and can reveal him. Paragraph 459, this is in the section about why did the Word become flesh. The Word became flesh to be our model of holiness, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. On the mountain of the transfiguration, the Father commands, listen to him. See so here we have an interesting explanation or various explanations of why the word became flesh. And there's more than one reason. And in this section, the Catechism says one of the reasons is so that he could be a model of holiness. And it links it here to... The passage in the Transfiguration where the Father says, listen to him. And paragraph 649, this is about the resurrection. And here it links to the entire chapter of Mark chapter 9. It says, as for the Son, he effects his own resurrection by virtue of his divine power. Jesus announces that the Son of Man will have much to suffer, die, and then rise. Elsewhere, he affirms explicitly, I lay down my life that I may take it again. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. And the paragraph goes on from there. I hope you learned something new in today's episode. The Transfiguration is really quite fascinating, and in a lot of ways, you can't really exhaust it. It's it's well worth studying. If you've learned something new, you think others would benefit from hearing this, please share this podcast with them, and we'll continue tomorrow.